ending our, our time in chapter 3 of Jonah. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 this morning. Jonah 3, 4 through 10. As you turn, consider this. We've, we've over the last you know, few months, we've been looking at many characters uh, in the story of Jonah. Um, God himself, his attributes, his divine attributes, how he acts, how he speaks, how he deals with, with rebels. We've even put Jonah himself in the spotlight, looked at his actions, his behaviors, and it showed us a lot about our humanity. We have spoken uh, about the sailors. And this morning, we we're turning our focus off of Jonah for just one Sunday, and, and we're, we're going we're gonna to focus the spotlight in on the king of Nineveh. And here's the king's predicament. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the worship service this morning that the king of Nineveh is at the top of the food chain. Nineveh and Assyria are the greatest city at this point in the world, or the capital. And another rival culture, and a rival god comes in and says, after 40 days, you're going to be wiped out. And so the king is, is, is presented with an option. He's presented with a choice. Um, is might right? Does might make right? Do I have anybody to fear? Do I have anybody to bow to? Do I have anybody to be humble before? Or do I listen? Do I bow the knee? And in our passage this morning, what the king is going to do is he's going to do that one thing, the only thing that he can do to save his city from entire destruction. What is it? Well, let's find out. Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. This is God breathed. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation. And published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out violently to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we address you all three this morning because, God, you are the provider of the great promises and the great hope we see in this Scripture. And Jesus, again, you are our King. And Spirit, these are words until you supernaturally act and move among us. And you take that hammer, which is the word, and you dash our hearts, our hard hearts of stone, and break them into pieces. Father, we are lost without you. And this world is destined to ruin without you, but you have not left us by ourselves. You have granted us your great word. And so now we ask that you would use it mightily greatly in our lives, Father, so that we might boast and give you the glory. Attend to us now, Spirit, we pray. Cause our eyes to see. Let the scales fall off. Let us see the truth. And allow us, like Nineveh, to believe it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everything was 
upside down. And I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally. Tables and chairs were now on the ceiling. Light fixtures and chandeliers were now on the floor. Their entire world was turned upside down. You actually may remember this film from 1972 if you're dated enough. It was called The Poseidon Adventure. And the story goes as follows. It's the greatest passenger ship that ever existed. And it carried more people than any passenger ship has ever carried. But then they're traveling through this storm and this tidal wave comes and it hits the ship. And it doesn't destroy the ship. It doesn't break up the ship. It capsizes the ship. And I didn't know this. I'm not a boater. But to be capsized means the boat just completely flips over. What is up is down. Now the top of the ship is the bottom of the ship. And there's ten characters left. There's ten survivors left in this, in this grand dining hall. It's New Year's. They're celebrating New Year's. And there's only ten survivors left. And they're trying to make up for down. They're trying to go, okay, how do we get out of here? Some suggest this. They say, okay, we need to find the bridge. We need to go find the captain. Because if we can find him, we can get out of here. Another suggests we need to get to the top of the ship. We need to find a deck, a door leading to the deck. If we can get out into the water, we can swim to the surface. But then very calmly, and with all coolness, Gene Hackman, who plays Reverend Scott, suggests this. He says, friends, he says this very coolly, the way up is down. The only way up is down. If we're going to survive, if we're going to live this, we have to navigate through the bowels of this ship. We have to find the bottom of the ship. He said, no, all that stuff won't work. The captain's dead. We will perish. If we want to live, we have to go down. We have to find the bottom of the ship. In our passage this morning, we have a king in a very similar situation. Crisis, this, this tidal wave has come into Nineveh, and in 40 days it will be destroyed, and the king has a choice. He can say, and he can stand by, by the motto, might is right, I, I bow to no one, I'm at the top of the food chain, I have absolutely nothing to fear. But that's not what he does. He repents. He bows the knee. He offers himself as, as, a, as a humble, submissive servant before the Lord. And not only does he does, do that himself, but he, he, he declares this edict across the nation with his nobles. Let man, let beast, let everyone bow the knee. Let everyone repent. Because he believes this very, very important truth, and it's the truth that all of us need to hear this morning. It's this. The way up is down. This counterintuitive truth of the gospel is this. And he embodies it for us in this passage this morning. The way up is down. God will exalt those who humble themselves, and those who humble themselves, he will exalt. The modern lyricist says this. If you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. The way up is down. And if being down means repenting and being humble and being submissive, we have to be really, really good at getting down. Sounds like a 70s lyric, doesn't it? <laughs> we got to be really good at getting down. But we should. That's our call this morning. So what does real repentance look like? What does it look like in the life of someone who is truly and not falsely and not partially repentant, but fully repentant, fully submissive, fully humble before the Lord? Well, three adjectives I want us to look at this morning are this. First, real repentance is specific. It's specific. The second, real repentance is a lifestyle. It's specific. It's a lifestyle. And lastly, it's thorough. Real repentance is thorough. First, Real repentance is specific. What do I mean? Look with me again at the second part of verse 8. Not the first part, but the last half of verse 8. And notice 
the king's progression from a general awareness of sin to a very specific sin in and of itself. Notice his progression from general to specific. The second half of verse 8. Listen to it again with fresh ears. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Notice his confession starts general. He says, he says to the Ninevites, we, we must repent of our evil ways. And the word here that's used in, in the original language is that word ra'ah, which just means just this general body of sin, just general wickedness. But notice the king doesn't stay there. He doesn't stop there. He gets very more specific. He, he, he hits the jugular. What does he say? He says, and let's also repent of our violent ways. Remember, why is Nineveh in God's crosshairs? Is it because they're defying God? They're speaking ill against God because they're stealing from other nations? No. Why are they in the Lord's crosshairs? Why has their wickedness come before the Lord? Why does he smell their wicked deeds? It's because of the way they've treated human life. I mean, we're talking like Nazi Germany stuff. The atrocities that they performed on the, on the cultures and nations they occupied were unspeakable. And that's why they're in God's crosshairs. And notice that is the very thing the king confesses and encourages Nineveh to confess. Not just this general awareness of sin, not just this general specific, yes, uh, we're, we're broken people, but, but here's the most important thing. We need to repent of our violence, of our wickedness. And, and friends, I want to suggest this morning that real repentance is specific. It's easy for us to stay general and stay in the world of, of broad generalities, but you can't have real, conf- real repentance without confession. Let me illustrate it this way. Husbands and wives, roommates, siblings, uh, your counterpart has offended you greatly. It's an, it's an egregious sin against you. And you have been hurt, validly hurt. It's not because you're overly sensitive. You have been offended greatly. And in attempts to reconcile them to you, the following morning they approach you, and, and this is what they say. Um, mistakes were made. Have a great day. Um, mis- uh, yeah, mistakes were made. Does that cut it for you? Would you feel like, ah, reconciliation accomplished, done? Does that cut it for you? It doesn't for me. And friends, it doesn't do it for the Lord. And you might be going, well, is the Lord being a princess here? I mean, what's... No, it's this. Real repentance is specific. Real confession is specific. Because if repentance is a turning from one thing unto the Lord, we've got to know what we're turning from. We've got to know. We can't just live in broad generalities. We just can't live in this world of, yes, there, are, there is good and bad, and, and mistakes were made, Lord, and is that good enough? No. It's not. Because of this truth as well. God never reveals our heart and all of its wickedness to us at one time. If he did that, we could get away with one big blanket repentance all at one time and be done with it. But this is what the Lord does. As you walk and as the scriptures say, as you keep in step with the Spirit, he pulls the veil back just a little bit. And he shows you your heart and he shows you something and you just go, that ought not be. That hurts the people I'm in fellowship with. That hurts the people I'm in relationship. I need to repent of that. And you do. And you turn to the Lord. And then you walk a few more steps. And what the Spirit does is He pulls the curtain back just a little bit more. And you see something different. And you just went, oh, not as good as I thought I was. I need to repent of that too. And you specifically repent of that sin. 
And then you walk a few more steps and you're keeping in step with the Spirit and the Spirit pulls the veil back even more and you're just going, I have a real problem. I'm a broken man. I'm a broken woman. You can't live in general confession. We have to be specific. Real repentance is specific. It's not general. Second thing I want us to see this morning is that real repentance is a lifestyle. Okay, it's not just specific. It's a lifestyle. And look with me again at verses four, at verse four, the second half of verse four. And, and consider this as we read this. Repentance was never meant to be an event. Repentance was meant to be a lifestyle. Okay, you don't pay taxes once. We are taxpayers. It is a lifestyle. And notice the same is true of repentance. Verse four, the second part. Jonah called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see, when we look at the book of Jonah, um, we actually have more data outside the book of Jonah on the city of Nineveh than is actually in the book. I mentioned one to you last week. Remember, Jesus himself quotes um, the end of Nineveh, what happens with Nineveh, right? Jesus says to this wicked and adulterous generation that was looking for a sign, he says, you know who's going to come with me at the second judgment? It's going to be the men of Nineveh. You know why? Because they repented. But I want to suggest to you this morning that's, that's half of the ending. We have more data. We have more story. We have more narrative on Nineveh. And to get that story, we have to go to the book of Nahum. That's another minor prophet. And note this. When we look at the book of Nahum and you read commentaries on it, um, very rarely do you find people just kind of agree you know, on something biblical. But all these commentators agree. What is the theme of, of Nahum? What is the one theme? What is the one message it's trying to bring across? The destruction of Nineveh. It will be destroyed. Listen to what God says through his prophet Nahum to the city of Nineveh. This too is God's word. The scatterer has come against you. Man your ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. What is Nahum about? The destruction of Nineveh. It is destroyed. It is gone. And we just kind of go, well, wait a minute. It sounds like the biblical story is contradicting itself. It sounds like Jesus says, no, they repented and they're with him in heaven and coming at the second judgment. But according to Nahum, they're wiped off from the face of the earth. Can I make a suggestion this morning? Do you remember Jesus' parable about the sower? And you remember the four soils. He goes out and he casts the seed. You remember the first soil? It begins to grow. But it's among the rocks and the sun scorches it. And it doesn't last. Friends, we can do the same thing with repentance. What is happening, actually happening here with, with Nineveh, this city, this nation as a whole, happens to us on an individual level all the time. We think that repentance is just this one event, this event that marks something in, in our Christian life, and, and we're mistaken because repentance is not an event, it's a lifestyle. And if it is not our lifestyle, it's not real repentance. If repentance is that something we, we did a long, long time ago, we were repented of our, our sins back at what we call our, our conversion, that's great. It's got to start somewhere. But the mark of a believer, according to Jonah, the mark of a believer, according to Jesus is this, continual 
and constant repentance. It's not necessarily giving to the poor, although that is a mark of the believer. It's not tithing. It's not church attending. Does that unnerve you? That scares the fool out of me. The mark of a real believer is repentance, a life of brokenness and repentance. And oh, that that would be said about us as a congregation. When people have you know, this, this, this wealth of, of, of churches to choose from in the city, they say, but there's something different about DPC. There's something a bit different about those folks. Not pretentious, not self-centered, and not debasing of themselves in, in a weird or awkward way, but man, they are humble people. It is a lifestyle. And that it would be said about us, our church, our families? Would it be that we are known as a church and as a people by our repentance before God? And notice this too. It's a little bit more subtle, but it's here in this passage. It's part of the reason why God gives Nineveh 40 days. I alluded to it last week. I want to camp on it this morning. Why would God give somebody 40 days to repent? Because it takes, it takes a long time to break an addiction, doesn't it? And for very few of us, it's, it's not easy just to kind of flip the light switch and go, okay, I've repented, I'm, I'm done. No, it, it's a lifestyle. 40 days of repentance. Because come day 41, you're going, for what I did the last 40 days, that protected me from the wrath of God. I'm going to keep doing that. That's the way to life. The way up is down. Repentance was meant to be a lifestyle, not an event. Lastly, Real repentance is thorough. What do I mean by thorough? Notice this. I want to look at three verses here as we discuss this, this concept. It's, it's first thorough individually. You and me, individually, it's thorough. It starts with the head, moves to the heart, and then moves to the hands. and involves the thinking, the feeling, and the willing. Stop it at any point, and it ceases to be repentance. Remove just one element and it ceases to be repentance. It has to have all three. Notice the progression here as we look at Jonah chapter 3 in verse 5. The beginning of verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They made a cognitive decision that we have options here, but we're going to put our, our, our chips with this guy. We're going we're to go in with Yahweh. We're going to believe this man. Okay, it starts with the head. And notice how it moves to the heart of the king. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Now, what we can't see here in the English is what this word really means. This same word is used when the Lord reaches the house of Pharaoh with a plague. It's the same word when, when Yahweh reaches Jacob's hip and Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. It is not just this ascent, this knowledge, oh, I know something new now. No, it reaches, it touches, and it strikes, and it has struck the king. It is not just some truth he ascends to and believes it has now reached the heart. And we know it's reached the heart. Why? Because when you reach the heart, you get the hands. You get the behavior. You do what you love. And what does the king do? How does he respond to this word of woe and these 40 days of grace? Listen, in verse 6, the word strikes, the word touched the king of Nineveh. And he arose. Remember that word? We've highlighted that word all throughout Jonah. The word up and the word down. The king of Nineveh arises from his throne. 
He removes his robe. He covers himself with sackcloth. He sits in ashes, and he issues a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the, by the decree of the king and nobles. Let, no, let man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. He declares and he performs a personal and a corporate fast. And what we need to see here culturally is this is what you do when you are truly repentant. It's what Job did. These were all the signs, all the signals of a true and real repentance. But, but notice this also. It's one thing for one of us to do this, to humble ourselves and submit. But what is most striking about this passage is that this is no layman. Who is this? This is the man at the top of the world. This is the man subject to no one. This is the man that answers to no one. This is the king of the capital city of the world. And what does he do? He takes his, he removes himself from his seat of authority. That place when people look upon it and say, whoever is seated there, that man is sovereign. That man is in control and he removes himself from it voluntarily. And he trades his throne for an ash heap. And he takes off his royal robes, those things which signify dignity, power, glory, majesty, and authority. And what does he do? He takes them off. And he puts on sackcloth. It's one thing for one of us to do that. But when a king does it, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's a whole different it's a whole different ballgame. Real repentance has to, has to be thorough individually. It has to be something we know and something we learn. But if we stop there, if that's all it is, then all we are is informed. We're not repentant. We're informed. And if we're convicted and the, and the word comes and it dashes our heart like a, like a hammer and, and we have guilt and shame and godly remorse, if we stop there, we are only convicted. We're not repentant. That is conviction. It's got to capture the will. It's got to capture the hands. It's got to capture our behavior. Only then is it truly repentance. Stop anywhere in the process. It is not real. Remove any element, and it is not real repentance. It's got to be thorough. I want to close with this this morning. Not only is real repentance thorough individually, notice how thorough it is socially. It's not just the king who repents. But he calls this, this edict, this law to go out across the land, and he says, not just me, and not just my nobles, but everyone, beast included. What happens to, to a beast when it's not fed? What does your dog do when it's not fed? It howls, it cries, it barks, doesn't it? And he said, let all of our cries come before the Lord as one. Let us call out violently to the Lord. No one excluded, no one gets the grandfather clause here. Everybody. Everybody's going to do it. Notice that repentance is, is not a grassroots movement. You know, a lot of musicians these days, it's hard to get the attention of, of labels and big-time executives. Everybody wants to be a musician. So what a lot of musicians are doing these days is they're just giving their music out for free. They're giving it to the people, hoping this, that if you like your music, their music, you're going to give it to somebody else. And they're going to give it to somebody else. And they're going to give it to somebody else. And, and suddenly, execs and, and, and these people who make these big decisions regarding labels are just going, we've missed something. These people are important, whoever they are. We need to sign them quickly. It's kind of like this grassroots movement. And I want to suggest this morning that repentance isn't a grassroots movement. Repentance is a trickle-down movement. It starts, it starts with the king. 
doesn't it? And as powerful and as moving as the story is of this king, this king of Nineveh, willingly removing himself from his throne and taking on a throne of ash heap and calling out violently to God, as powerful as a gesture as that is, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have something better. Fear is a powerful motivator. Destruction is a powerful motivator. But we have something stronger. We too have a king. And if I could, these are, these are Paul's words to the church in Philippi. Remember what he said about Christ, who is the king of kings from the line of David, who was going to be the king of the Jews? Remember how he described him in his first coming, his advent, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself. He made himself a servant. He took on human flesh. He became one of us. As as powerful as, as doom and destruction and gloom are in motivating people, friends, the church, we have something better. We too, like the people of Nineveh, have a king that will willingly leave his throne and put on flesh and put on ash because that's what real kings do when their people are threatened when lives are dangling over the cliff real kings will put aside their pride will put aside their glory and will humble themselves and submit themselves for the sake of their people and I want to suggest this morning I want to ask it in the form of a question would, would Nineveh have repented without the king's behavior? Would Nineveh have repented without the king's behavior? Had the king not issued this edict, and had the king not removed himself from the throne, and, and lowered himself, and humbled himself, and subjected himself, would they have repented? I don't think so. It takes a king. And that's what real kings do. And friends, brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, that is what our King of Kings did. He humbled himself. He said, look, not from a cold and dismissive throne, hey, the way up is down. He's like, I'm going to show you. Let me show you that the way up is down. Let me serve you. Let me heal you. Let me comfort you. Let me be Emmanuel, God with us. Paul closes by saying this, that God raised him up and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father And he received the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, this is not just a message of Jonah. This is the message of Scripture with Jonah and Jesus' stamp of approval at the very end. Friends, the way up is down. We have a great king that left his throne on our behalf that we too should follow in his footsteps that we too would learn how to kneel so that we may all kiss the sky together. Let's pray. Father, would you lead us into a genuine repentance? Not a fake one, not a partial one, not a half repentance, but Father, lead us Lead us there through the power of your word and through the power of the spirit and through the grace and the mercy of your son, Jesus Christ, so that we too may find the joy that we long to see and long to feel and long to experience, which is at your 
right hand. And Father, we would only ask you of things that you can do on our behalf or we cannot do it. But help us follow in the footsteps of our King, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.